So given that I've been speaking about compassion this weekend, I thought I would continue to talk about compassion tonight. Compassion is one of the overarching principles in Buddhism. It's considered very important on a number of different levels. And it's so important in Buddhist practice that it's considered half the path. That the path is often um, um, imaged as that of a bird with two wings. And one wing is the wing of wisdom and the other wing is the wing of compassion. And even that may be a little too too mechanical a way to think about it. In the teachings, it's, it's very clear that there is no wisdom without compassion. And there's not true compassion without wisdom, that they go together. And so tonight, I'll talk a little bit about compassion and what it is, what it isn't from a Buddhist perspective, and how we might look at it, think about it in terms of our own practice in terms of how we're relating to our experience moment by moment by moment. And then also look a little bit at how we relate to the experience of not only our immediate experience or our meditative experience, but the experience of being in the world and relating to other people, to our families, our workplace, our culture, our communities, our countries and our world. And just in terms of context, um, compassion is, is um, considered one of the beautiful states of mind, one of the beautiful states of heart. That it's, it's, in the, it's placed in the realm of the Brahma Viharas The Brahma Viharas are, are the divine abodes or the godlike realms. Brahma is the, was the supreme god of India. Abo- the Vihara means abode or home or house or dwelling. And it's said that when the beautiful states of mind, that when the states of mind of loving kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity are present, that we are, it, it is as if we are gods when that's our state of heart and mind. That the, the purity of heart shines through. The, the essence of who and what we are shines through, radiates, expresses itself in those four qualities. And compassion, and actually each of the Brahma Viharas, can be invoked, can be cultivated, But I think it's really important to understand that they're innate. They're innate to who we are. They're not something far away, and they're not something that you don't know. There may be um, um, greater or less access to these states of heart and mind, but they're natural to us. 
They are what's present. They are the um, what's referred to sometimes as the awakened heart. The heart's natural response to life if the heart has not been hardened, if the not heart is not encrusted, if the heart is not covered over, if the heart is not um, defended. That when the heart is open, when the mind is free, when we're, we're present in a full and awake way, that these, this is how the heart responds naturally to life. That there's a natural, and I'm going to switch the translation instead of loving kindness, we could just as easily use the word friendliness. There's a friendliness towards life or a friendliness towards our experience, a warmth towards our life, people, our experience. Um, the example I like to use is that of the Dalai Lama who says he greets each person as if they're an old friend. And if you've met him, that's, that's how he re- relates to you. He relates to you like, oh, hi, you know, as if you know him. And it's, it's a wonderful way to be met besides the fact that he's, he's a pretty present fellow in general. And, and in the same way, um, using the Dalai Lama as an example, when they're suffering, his compassion is just evident. It's, it just arises naturally, spontaneously. He's not doing compassion. He's not trying to be compassionate. It's often because we... Um, um, because these states of heart and mind are beautiful, we respect them very much. Sometimes we idealize them a certain bit. And then we try to act in that way. Well, if we like, if we think friendliness and compassion and joy and equanimity, that they're good things, well, then I'm going to do that. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be joyful. And, and that's not a bad thing to try and do. I mean, that's okay. That, that can work for a while. And in certain situations, it's better than doing the opposite, generally. But... But in terms of our practice, and this is where compassion and all the Brahma Viharas really are, are inherent in our mindfulness practice, if we begin to pay attention, if we begin to pay attention to what's happening moment by moment, if we begin to see that we don't have to be bound by um, grasping or bound by pushing away, or in the thrall of wanting things always, or in the thrall of not wanting things always, then what will start to happen quite naturally is that a freedom will come, or an, a space, spaciousness will come, an openness will come. And within that openness, then the heart can start to act naturally. We don't have to do compassion. We don't have to do loving. We don't have to try and be joyous. It's actually really hard to try and be joyful. Have you ever tried to, oh, I'm going to be joyful now, you know, and you feel like shit. You know, it just, it just doesn't work exactly. And so, so and I'm, I'm saying this because cause we so much respect and in some sense yearn for these states, yearn for our heart to be free, that we try to act it. And, and it's okay, but the mechanical action of that is a little bit clunky 
as, compo as compared to the reality of freeing the heart and letting it respond quite naturally to reality. And, and by that, I'll, I'll just say this again in reference to the Brahma Viharas, these four divine abodes or sublime abodes, sublime states of mind, that they, they're, they're natural responses when, when we're, we have a sense of ease and peace and well-being, we feel friendly. We feel warm, kind, loving. When there's suffering, the heart morphs naturally. It responds naturally with compassion, with kindness that's warm and caring, that's empathic, sympathetic. And when there's good things, when there's beauty, when there's um, somebody's enjoying or it's successful or happy, then joy comes quite naturally. And Equanimity, Upeka, the fourth Brahma Vihara, is really partly understood as the wisdom of the heart. It's also the part of the heart that sees the way things are, that sees the way things are, and that is in balance with them, can enjoy what's good, can be compassionate with what's difficult, can be friendly and open to things, but it also it also knows that everything will fluctuate, everything will change, that there's a sense of balance even with the joys and sorrows of life, even with what's called the 10,000 joys and sorrows in Taoism. So, compassion, it's interesting, I don't know, at least as I think about when I was growing up, um, and even as a young man, I don't remember the word compassion being used a lot. I, don't, I just don't remember it. But I hear it a lot more in the mainstream these days. In the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years, it's, it's, it's more fashionable compassion. Different people talk about being compassionate. I was, I was really struck by this. I was listening to Rush Limbaugh one day. And he started talking about uh, conservative, compassionate conservatism, something like that. And I thought, well, it really hit the mainstream now. <laughs> I don't know how much practice Rush is doing now, but um, so it, I think it's helpful to really. Um, not assume we exactly know what it means. Let's really look a little bit at what it means, at least in Buddhist terms, and then also even conventionally where the word comes from. In, in Buddhism, the word is karuna, karuna. And karuna means a, a quivering of the heart in the light of suffering. That when the heart, when the heart meets suffering, it, it vibrates, it resonates, it's touched by the suffering. It's not cold, it's not distant, it's not um, immune to the suffering. It, it feels it, it's a sensitivity. And it's a sensitivity that actually is quite natural for us as human beings that often we grow out of in a, as a defense because we don't have um, the training to learn how to be with suffering and maintain our balance and maintain our well-being in the face of suffering. 
So often what will happen is, as we quite naturally experience the various vicissitudes of life as children and then especially as teenagers can be very difficult years or as an adult just to really be in the world there's a lot of pain and suffering a lot of heartache disappointment that, that's just on the on the most basic level and then there's trauma and abuse all kinds of things happen to us and we cope the best we can. We do the best we can. And often our coping strategies are unfortunately, we, we just don't get the training to learn how to work with our suffering, be with suffering, see, understand how to transform suffering in order to keep the heart open, in order to allow that sensitivity to live in us. Now what will happen is the sensitivity will start getting covered over and getting veiled or getting blocked because we need to to survive or we believe we need to to survive in some way. And it may be true if we don't have the skillful means to work with what happens to us or even if nothing really bad happens to us, even just to look at clearly at what's happening in the world, it's often overwhelming, it's too much. Again, this is where mindfulness and compassion are, are woven together because the mindfulness will begin to give us the tools to work with our own suffering, will give us the skills to be able to sit with pain, to open to hurt, to see how we can be present moment by moment by moment with the difficulties and the, uh, and the pains of life, the disappointments or the fear or the anger or the aggression or the desire or whatever it is. And then as we start to have some faith that actually we can tolerate our experience and find our ground in that experience, compassion is a natural part of that. That there's a compassion for ourselves, for our own suffering and a compassion for the suffering of others. So this sensitivity, that compassion implies a certain sensitivity towards ourself, towards other beings, towards the reality of suffering in human life. And the Buddha centered our practice around suffering. The Four Noble Truths, that there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's freedom from suffering, and there's a path that leads to freedom. And he offered these teachings, it said in the text, that the Buddha, when he, after his enlightenment, um, he, he can't decide whether to teach or not. And he actually thinks he's not going to teach because he thinks people won't, won't get it. That it's too, uh, too subtle is what he says in the text, that it's too subtle for people. And, um, and one of the gods from the Deva realm comes, comes to him and says, no, you should teach. You need to teach because there are people with little dust on their eyes that will understand. And then it's said, with his eye of wisdom, he surveys the world and he sees the suffering and he agrees to teach 
because of the suffering of the world. And actually, it's, I'm going to back up a little in the story of the Buddha because it's an interesting part. Um, his, the night of his enlightenment, there, there, it takes place in what's called the three watches of the night. The night in, in the um, Indian culture of that time was divided into three parts. And so in the first watch of the night, the Buddha's understanding, his awakening, is about his own personal narrative that he looks at his own experience and his own history and it said of course he could look back a number of lifetimes many many lifetimes and see where he was born and what happened and that how he ended up here and he in some sense it's um, considered in that first watch he liberates his personal narrative his personal story and then he takes this you know this mind that he's been cultivating through the mindfulness practice that actually that night he's practicing anapanasati mindfulness of breathing and his mind is cultivated it said that it's bright it's purified it's um, it's malleable and soft it's it can penetrate reality this is a collected mind with concentration and mindfulness and then he turns his mind in the second watch of the night to other beings and he sees the he sees other beings and he can see the the history of other beings and he sees how beings are born um, over and over again seeking happiness and not finding it doing doing things that cause themselves suffering but not understanding why and so he looks he first he looks personally and then he looks universally and he liberates his understanding of the personal and then the universal and then in the third watch of the night he comes back to the present moment to his experience right there and then and that's where he realizes awakening as he touches the earth and acknowledging his right our right to awaken our right to be free our our birth not our right in terms of right and wrong our right in terms of our birthright as part of our inheritance as human beings the the possibility for the maturation of the human consciousness to be free and so and and that's a very, a very important piece especially the second watch of the night where he sees that beings seek happiness basically in the wrong places that they they seek happiness by going away from suffering by, by running away from suffering, by trying to get away from it. And he realizes in his awakening that it is through suffering, seeing the cause of suffering, discovering the freedom from suffering and the path that leads to freedom that one is awakened. And those four truths are connected. They're not, they're not um, prescriptions or they're not commandments. They're... Um, their um, invitations to interact with those truths. So the first truth of suffering is to be understood. The second truth of the cause of suffering is to be released. The third truth of that there is freedom from suffering is to be realized. And the fourth truth that there's a path or skillful means is to be nourished or cultivated. And so they're, they're invitations, they're, they're an invitation um, to see what the Buddha saw, to realize what the Buddha realized. 
And this was his um, teaching to us that has come down now for 2,600 years. And and when after he was awakened and he was encouraged, he was given some guidance. It was said that out of compassion, he decided to teach. So the term compassion in English, uh, or at least when I was first investigating this, didn't make a lot of sense to me. I tend to think of passion, right? Compassion means with passion. Compassion. Passion, you know, I think of passion as being fiery or aroused or um, having a lot of ardor in a certain way. Could be, you know, passion often associated with uh, sexuality or sensuality, but also with a a certain kind of deep love and um, uh, fire. And so I didn't, it just didn't make sense with passion. What does that have to do with kindness and empathy and uh, and a tenderness or a response? And if you, and so I went to the dictionary and with the dictionary, what I found was the first definition of uh, passion is the suffering of pain. This is a def, not of compassion, but of passion, means the suffering of pain. And then the second, or 1A, it said the suffering of Christ on the cross. And the suffering of Christ on the cross is called the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ. And this is the passion in the sense of um, suffering being the possibility, having the transformative possibility of freedom. That in the Western tradition, it's it's talked about a little differently, but Christ is a beautiful example of going through the suffering to freedom. That he doesn't turn away from suffering, and it's on the cross when he says something like, "Forgive them, Lord; they know not what they do." That his compassion arises through his suffering. Not by getting away from suffering or not by fixing everything, but actually finding himself fully present in the middle of suffering. Uh, A certain kind of spiritual archetype of transformation, redemption. And, And just technically the word which comes from the ancient Greek means to be affected to suffer, to endure, and also in the Latin, also the quality of being patient is included in that. And so this becomes really important for us because suffering is understood to be the doorway to compassion, the gateway to compassion in Buddhism. That it is through not just our suffering, but our finding learning the skillful means, learning how to be present with our suffering in a skillful way that will then open our heart, that will allow our heart to remain or to reestablish its sensitivity in the world. And I I wanted to say this before I forgot, but you know, when I talk about this, I think about little kids. And little kids, sometimes, sometimes they display this incredible natural compassion. They don't even know what's going on exactly. If you're crying, if you're a parent and you're crying, and the little kid, your child will come up to you and they just want to help. 
and they don't even know what's wrong exactly. Or kids offering something, you know, when somebody's, they're just looking to help. There's this natural response. They feel it. And they say often um, um, in nurseries, when one child cries, another child will cry, it like, like starts a resonance because because we're sensitive in that way. We feel the pain of others. We feel the suffering of others. And so then as adults, we have this possibility, this capacity to learn how to... Actually, in some ways, we could, I could say, come to grips with suffering. Come to grips with the difficulty of being a human being. And I, and I mean on every level. We can come to grips with it. And we can begin to find a ground that allows us um, maybe to help at times, maybe not to help at times, but, but a way to work with it so that it's transformative. In some sense, in the archetype of Christ and in the archetype of the Buddha also. And so suffering and freedom and compassion become linked how do we relate to our own direct experience? How do we relate to our suffering? When are you compassionate? When are we compassionate with our suffering? Or when are we harsh with ourselves when we're suffering? How often do we have, in Buddhism, what's called the second arrow? Something happens, whatever it is, hurt, fear, pain in the knee, anger, and then we start judging ourselves because we're having this experience. That, that's not the compassionate response. And here, actually, I believe it is good to be mechanical rather than let that continue. Even if the, if if the compassion is not arising um, naturally, be a little mechanical here. You know, really, don't, don't let the, the self-judgment just continue. It doesn't help. But if we can start to actually feel the suffering of our suffering, instead of judging the suffering, feel the suffering of our suffering. If we're afraid, can we actually feel the fear and be mindful of fear? If we're angry, can we actually feel the anger and be mindful of anger? Not just go off on what we're going to do with the anger, but actually feel the suffering of the anger. Or the dis-ease of the anger, or the uncomfortableness or the vibration, or the energy, or the tension in it. Because if we actually can start to feel the suffering within our suffering, then the compassion can arise naturally. Mostly, we're turning away from our suffering. We're trying to get away from it. We're trying to fix it. We're trying to deny it. We're trying to make it okay. We'll try to mentally say, oh, it's okay. I shouldn't feel so bad. But we don't actually feel as bad as we feel. Ajahn um, Sayada Upandita, one of the most traditional um, Burmese teachers, fierce meditation teacher, brilliant teacher. He says, uh, I mean, he's not a touchy-feely guy, Upandita. He's, he's not. But he says, when you cry, cry your eyes out. When you cry, cry your eyes out. And he's, he's giving a Dharma teaching here when he says that. He does not, he doesn't, he's not implying indulging in the way we might think about it. What he's saying is inhabit it fully. 
I'll give you my version is let it rip is, is the way I would say it let it rip and stay present for it let all, let all the tears come let all the sorrow come when you're angry let all the anger come don't do anything don't go do anything to somebody feel that feel it because it will it is the doorway to freedom this is the paradox of the Buddha's teaching of suffering, the cause of suffering, freedom from suffering, and path. Ajahn Chah talked about it this way. He said it very succinctly. He said, to run from suffering is to run towards it. To run from suffering is to run towards it. And of course, our training is to run from suffering. It's the training of our culture. It's the training of our time. It's a training that we see. I mean, all you have to do is watch TV. That's the whole training that we're getting, right? What are those commercials telling us? Do this, buy this, get this, have this, look like this, and you won't suffer. Your suffering will go away. And, you know, all those things are fine as one possibility. But if it's the only way we can respond to suffering, then, then we're, we're, we're in the thrall of suffering. We won't find our freedom through suffering. Now, I want to just... This is a little sidebar. The sidebar is, and especially if you're new to Buddhism, it can sound like, well, then you don't do anything. That's not actually the teaching. The teaching is to learn to be mindful and present within the experience. And then as one finds one's freedom, one can respond from freedom instead of in a, a habitual way, in a reactive way. One can actually be responsible to the suffering. And so if one is... You know, if one is just reacting in the usual way, you know, maybe you're just going to go out and get a pint of ice cream and eat every time something happens. And, you know, a pint of ice cream is okay once in a while, but if that's all you can do to respond to the suffering, it's, it, it's, there's no freedom there. But if one can start to sit with the whatever it is, the heartache or the anger or the fear or the grief or the whatever it might be, the physical suffering, the ache in the body, the pain, the discomfort, or the mind is chattering, 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 learning how to be present with that without judging ourselves, without adding the second arrow, and also seeing when we get present, when we're mindful with it, there's some part of us that's not caught in it. The pain may still be here. The ache may still be here. The fear may still be here. But there's something that's not in the thrall of it. That's not bound to it. And then we have the possibility of responding. Okay, what do I want? Do I want a pint of ice cream now? Or maybe I want to call a friend. Maybe that's a skillful way to respond. Or maybe I want to see if I could sit with this one more minute and see what happens. Maybe I can be curious about it. That's another skillful means. Maybe, maybe there's some other practice to do. Maybe I need to, you know, take a bath. Relax. But now, now there's some freedom. There's choice. And, and, the, and the reality is that there are infinite responses to suffering. 
There are infinite possibilities for how we can respond to suffering when the mind and heart is free. And the Buddha uh, is a great example of this. He would respond in very different ways at different times. I'll give you an example that, that you may or may not expect, but I didn't expect when I read it. There's a situation where one monk started to have an argument with another monk. And they really, it got heated, you know. And then some of the other friends of the first monk, right, got on his side. And the friends of the second monk got on his side. And it started to be a big deal in the Sangha. And so the Buddha came to mediate, you know, as these people are fighting, his, his monks are fighting, he's there, he's going to mediate. And he couldn't help, <laughs> he couldn't mediate between the two groups of monks. So at some point he says, um, I think I'm going to go be with the animals in the forest. They're much nicer to be than all you people. And that's, that's a response to suffering at times. To be, to be, a, and and here's the real the real truth of the response, is that sometimes objectively, whatever we do won't work, and that's the truth. Compassion doesn't mean that we're going to fix everything. Compassion means that we wish for people to be free of suffering, free of pain and suffering, that we wish for people to be happy in that way or peaceful in that way. Um, we, we do the best we can. I mean, this is... Uh, the other story that comes to mind is a very long story. I can't... I'm not going to go there, but there are a lot of stories where, where they're just... There's no uh, Buddhist teaching that lists how we're supposed to respond to suffering. That for the heart that's free, which is why we practice, then anything is possible. That reality is infinite, we're infinite in that, we're an expression of that infinity in that way. We can respond in whatever way. We don't have, there's not a box we need to stay inside of. Part of discovering freedom is discovering that there is no box. There is no box. So the quality of compassion, of learning how to turn towards our suffering, when we do that, when we can start to do that, when we can start to open to suffering, to feel it, to be honest with ourselves, to just say, okay, I'm having a hard time right now. And compassion can start to come with its kindness, with its warmth, with its tenderness. This is from Hamid Ali. He says, to be real, to be truthful, and to be truly ourselves is a part of the journey towards self-realization that often exposes our personal pain and suffering. Compassion is a kind, friendly presence that allows us to stay in contact with our pain so that we can deepen into rather than turn away from ourselves. And the key principle here is, is the principle of being present with things as they are, moment by moment by moment, 
by moment by moment. Being present with our our life, our human life, whatever it is, however it presents itself to us, learning that we have the capacity, we can develop the skills. Mindfulness is a skill that we can develop. And we can find the presence and the ground in order for suffering to transform and transform us. So some of the things that block our compassion or veil it are what I said before, the self-judgment will really not allow the compassion to come forward. Our identification with our emotions will often block our compassion. If we're identified with the suffering, if we're identified with the fear, the anger, or the grief, um, it often won't let uh, the compassion come. And this is a very tricky place in practice because I'm not talking about being dissociated from our emotions. It means feeling our emotions fully and being mindful at the same time. Feeling the emotion fully, knowing that we're feeling, letting it, letting it pierce us in some way really penetrate us and yet being able to be aware of it at the same time not being totally identified I personally I think of it of being both identified and disidentified at the same moment fully inhabiting it and yet knowing that it's happening in a way that it's not totally I'm not totally in the grasp of it in, in Bud, traditionally in Buddhism, what's called the near enemy of compassion is pity. That when we pity ourselves or we pity other people, we're actually distancing ourselves. And it's a, it has an uneven, an imbalanced quality. It's like, oh, it's their suffering. Or, oh, I'm so bad and I'm so, it's so horrible to me. It's a kind of... Um, it's not the clarity, it's not the objectivity of compassion. And this is an important word, the objectivity of compassion. And this, where I say that they're linked, wisdom and compassion are linked, is, is through the objectivity of compassion. Because partly it means seeing that, oh, this is the way it is, that this suffering relationships end, jobs are problematic, people don't do what we want, wars happen for the whole history of humanity, no matter what we do, that this is the way it is, and that the compassion knows that, the compassion is part of it. Compassion is not overwhelmed by suffering. It sees the reality. It responds, it touch, it's touched, it vibrates in the face of the suffering, but it also knows, oh, this is the truth of the way it is right now. And, and, and that quality allows us to find our ground and our groundedness and our center even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of travail and turmoil and pain and difficulty.
So partly, and this is really where the Brahma Viharas work together, because this is the equanimity quality, the subjectivity. The, the, the equanimity of, um, the, the, the clear seeing of equanimity balances the compassion to keep it from being overwhelmed, to keep it from being um, um, swamped by the suffering. This is from Nyanapanaka Tara speaking to this. He says, though it is often felt that it is only through becoming sorrowful ourselves that we are truly compassionate to others, this is not so. Compassion consists of wishing that others be free from suffering. We do not help others by being overcome by their misery. Between heartlessness on the one hand and being thoroughly overwhelmed on the other, on the other lies the option of compassion. We tend to think in our conventional way of thinking about uh, compassion, we think of it as an emotion. And we think of it as something that we get overwhelmed, that, that's too much, and then we're being compassionate. Or only if we're merged with the suffering are we compassionate. It's not exactly the Buddhist understanding. The Buddhist understanding is we're sensitive, we're touched by it, but we're not overwhelmed by the suffering. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get overwhelmed by the suffering, right? We do. The suffering sometimes is too much. The suffering of the world sometimes is definitely too much, and our own personal suffering is too much at times. Seeing that, it's very important to be compassionate with ourselves as Buddhists, right? We don't want to have judgment, oh, I'm not, now I'm overwhelmed, I'm not being compassionate, and then we're judging ourselves for that. No, actually, we want to feel the suffering of when we're overwhelmed, and then we have the possibility of the compassion arising naturally for that. And maybe again, one beautiful example is the Dalai Lama, who has seen his nation, his people, his culture really, I mean, not destroyed, but lost from their homeland, for sure. Um, and he's an amazingly happy person. Just delightfully joyful when you're with him. And yet if somebody's suffering, the response is immediate. And one story I read in a book about a woman, who, a Tibetan woman who'd been imprisoned in Tibet for 20 years and then escaped, came over the highest mountains in the world by, on foot. <coughs> and found her freedom in, in India and came. And the Dalai Lama meets everybody who leaves, who escapes from Tibet. And he meets them in Dharamsala and he asks them to tell their story. And she described meeting him and how she came in. And she had been really, uh, what had kept her hope alive was the idea she was going to meet the Dalai Lama in this lifetime. So her 20 years in prison, this was one of her dreams that kept her alive, kept her spirits uh, alive. 
and she and she comes in she said she started to bow and he wouldn't let her bow he took her hands and um, and he said tell me tell me what happened and um, and then she describes how they wept together as she told the story of her 20 years of imprisonment being tortured etc and the ba- Dalai Lama is right there you know he's right there he wept with her totally and then and then in the next moment he can be totally happy because he's not the heart is free the heart doesn't it's not bound it's touched it's moved it's human it's the full human heart now I want to be careful here we're talking about someone who's done a lot of practice Right. <laughs> so we, it's easy to start comparing ourselves. Well, I'm not like that. No. And partly we want to see the possibility. And also, you don't know what it'll look like in your experience. It may look different than the Dalai Lama. But he's just a beautiful exemplar of someone whose heart is quite free. And it's through turning towards suffering that will free our heart again from Nyanapanakatera he said the world suffers most people have their eyes and ears closed they do not see the unbroken stream of tears flowing through life they do not hear the cry of distress continually pervading the world bound by self-centeredness their hearts turn stiff and narrow It is compassion that removes the heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, and makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. And this is the possibility, the universal possibility for compassion. That we don't just practice for ourselves, but we practice for the benefit of all. We we study our suffering, we pay attention to our suffering, so then we can look and we can look objectively and you could just look around this room and you'll see suffering. And it's not a mistake and it's not that anybody's done anything wrong or it's not anybody's fault. It's just part, it's inherent to human life. It's just objective. There's suffering in human life. This was the Buddha's clear understanding. There is suffering. It's to be understood. Part of that understanding is that it's part of human life and that we can find our freedom even with the suffering that's here. So we're, we're out of time. We're not out of talk yet, but we're out of time. So I think I'll end here with a quote, one of my favorite quotes. It's from Ryokan, the Zen priest and poet, whose heart was, who's a beautiful, also a beautiful exemplar of a, of a mature human heart. He plays with the children. He weeps when he walks through, through a, a graveyard and he can't even read the, the names on the stones anymore. And he weeps for the people who've been forgotten. And he drinks sake with the rice farmers and plays games and just lives a full life. And he wrote, 
one of his most famous poems, he said, Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. That our hearts should be as wide as the world to hold each being, every being. That, and you can do this. Here's a practice for you for this week if you'd like. Go through your day and every once in a while take a look and look at someone, whether you know them or not, and just see the suffering that's there. Just see it. It's just there. It's there from aging. It's there from having a body. It's there from having been a man or been a woman. You know, there's, whatever your particulars are, there's suffering. People, it's good to look at people you think don't suffer. Maybe somebody who's rich or beautiful. Actually, look closer and you'll see the suffering. Because it's inherent in all human life. It's what actually connects us. And it's why our heart can be as wide as the world. When we really see the suffering, and then we see that the only thing that makes sense is compassion. The only thing that makes sense is kindness. Nothing else really makes sense. That we're, we're all in the same boat, whatever our class or race or position, we're all in the same boat. And as I said yesterday on the day long, I said, I, I want to be careful. You don't have to like everybody. You just have to love them. That's all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.